0: The American journalist, H.L. Mencken, once said that puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. This comment resonates now more than ever with the reemergence of a sanctimonious, humorless movement that targets all the things that make life most worth living from sports and comedy to art and food and special occasions. My guest on the podcast today argues that history will likely not remember these woke zealots well, and that at the heart of their movement, there is a deep distrust of humanity.
1: The laugh, the satisfying meal... None of this is an intellectual exercise. In fact, it's ungoverned by the intellect. And that's very dangerous if you're afraid of people's instincts, of impulses, that everything needs to be governed and tempered and moderated by social forces that keep you in your place.
0: Noah Rothman is the associate editor of Commentary magazine. He's also the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun*. Noah Rothman is my guest today on Lean Out. Noah, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Wonderful to have you on. The book is entertaining, it is funny, and it really does such a wonderful job of illustrating how everything has become so politicized, from comedy and sports and video games and car culture to Gardening, Knitting, Fashion, Alcohol, Apple Pie, Yogurt. Uh, It's a bit staggering to see it all laid out in one place. To start, talk to me about the conversation with your wife that was the seed of this book.
1: Sure. Probably around late fall of 2020, early winter, late fall, I was absolutely miserable. And I imagine quite a lot of people were similarly vexed by the conditions that were dominant at the time if you were a news consumer. The pandemic was still raging, quite a lot of social upheaval around the pursuit of racial rapprochement. Every institution in America and perhaps even Canada was reconceptualizing the American founding as something rather horrid. It was a sad time to be steeped in the news cycle, and I wanted to get out of it, do something. To restore my faith in my chosen profession. I'm talking to my wife about what I would do if I had the opportunity. And I talk to people in businesses and, and creative enterprises that I enjoy, people who make food for a living, showrunners, comics, sports broadcasters, and the like. But no, 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 no. Because all of it's political. There's no getting away from politics. Politics has infected Every aspect of society, even perhaps especially those that are apolitical and have almost nothing to do with legislative affairs or electoral outcomes. And she says that's the book. Mm. And it eventually was. It took a little bit to get a unifying thematic element to it, which was the puritanical aspect of all this and how how it relates to American puritanism as it evolved into American progressivism. But initially, the premise for the book was, why is everything that's supposed to be fun not anymore?
0: (laughs) Something that I definitely relate to. I want to tease a few of the threads of the new Puritan movement. But first, before we do this, set this up for us. For listeners who don't know a lot about this history, what's sort of a brief snapshot of the beliefs of the older Puritans in America?
1: Well, yeah, so I suppose it would be helpful to approach this from a more modern lens because the Puritans, big P Puritans get a really bad rap in American culture. The Puritans that existed in the 1600s and the 1700s do not much resemble our stereotypes when we envision what Puritans of the of that period believed. What we really go back to are stereotypes about the uh, moral policing efforts of mid-19th century, uh, mostly progressives, but uh, not progressives in the way we mean it today, as in left of center, Social reformers, essentially, uh, and the calm stockery <laughs> that accompanied that movement. Big P Puritans, while well, they get a bad rap, did have some instrumental beliefs that are apparent today in the modern progressive movement. Chief among them, I suppose, is a hatred and a fear of idleness—that which is not actively promoting the social project of the time. Uh, at the time, Puritanical values. Today, the modern progressive project. It is not just instrumentally useless. But actively detrimental to the cause and to the promotion of a more virtuous society. So the Puritans, big P Puritans, much like their modern progenitors, cannot abide art that exists only for the sake of promoting itself, promoting beauty. That is that is not an instrumental contribution to the to the project of our time. Things that get like a a bit of dispensation, for example, portraiture. Making statues, creating furniture—you know—the work of of craftsmen it gets gets a pass because it it communicates to future generations that which is the the powers that be believe needs to be taught to posterity. To communicate uh, modern conditions, to communicate modern values and virtues—that has a purpose, that has a use—and we see uh, reflections of that in how modern progressive activists approach art today. In so far as, for example, entertainment, big entertainment companies like Disney need to introduce plotting didactic narratives that communicate to the audience the virtues that they believe need to be taught to them, whether or not that advances a plot. Even to the extent that it could help lead you to drop out of the narrative to stop suspending disbelief, which is a crime, an artistic crime. But it's necessary today to make sure that these rather frivolous diversions are an instrumental and productive contribution to the promotion of a virtuous society. The modern Puritans would would absolutely see in the earliest Puritans the exact same imperative, although with different objectives in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is where we, we see the uh, instructions all the time of doing the work, doing the work. I want to go through a few striking examples from the book, and I want to start here with food. That kind of implosion of the food world has been particularly mind-boggling to me, because that is often where I went for my own kind of pleasure and diversion. You have an example from Toronto in the book. You write about the former Toronto Star editor, Evie Kwong, calling out this pop-up bone broth bar for cultural appropriation. This did cause the leisureware store to cut ties with this microbusiness in the middle of a pandemic, I would add. Um, how does this example illustrate the broader trends of what you're writing about when it comes to food?
1: Yeah, so this was one of a handful of examples in the beginning of this chapter, which is dedicated to prudence. Essentially, all the chapters are organized by unimpeachable values because there is a valuable moral code informing what is otherwise just to look at it as an as anecdote, something absolutely manic. But in this particular episode, this, yeah, this Leisure store was selling Asian foods, superfood, bone broth, wellness products, what have you. And uh, and Ms. Kwan called them out for cultural appropriation, for commodifying Asian culture and cheapening it to some degree or another, which is a very subjective exercise, but not entirely valueless. However, it's very much akin to similar episodes. For example, I talk about this uh, particular in, in Portland, in Portland, Oregon area, this uh, burrito, uh, pop-up burrito truck that was hounded out of existence, not for being bad or appropriative or, or careless with the food it was making, but for being good. The proprietors of this particular institution were fetid. By its reviewers, they had gone down to Mexico, got these recipes, came back. Nobody in Mexico had said they had stolen anything from them, but they were accused of that primarily because their race, they were white. And the thing that the locals loved had to be destroyed in the name of this particular belief system. Likewise, a very popular restaurant in Chicago called Fat Rice was uh, the, the proprietor of that institution, was hounded out of his chosen career in part because of this manic pursuit of racial rapprochement that, uh, that arose in 2020. And for some reason, this Asian fusion restaurant had been accused of uh, blending cultures, mixing cultures, taking from from Black identities, for example, even though this was a theme, uh, the restaurant's theme was based on food and cuisine from the Hong Kong area, from the Macau area. Mm. Um, all of this is informed by a particular worldview that believes your ability to deprive yourself of something good and virtue and and uh, and satisfying, sort of elementally satisfying uh, is a indication of your commitment to the cause, of your zealotry, of your capacity to contort yourself more more viscerally and in ways that communicate to the people around you, your zealotry. And that's very much a religious impulse. Uh, we see quite a lot of this insofar as, in this per chapter on food, how activists in this world who are obsessed with cultural appropriation, whatever that may be, uh, expand the definition of what that constitutes to capture as as many experiences that are satisfying, viscerally. As possible and de-emphasize the pleasure that you might take in them. For example, there's a digression in this chapter about eating insects, not because they taste good, but because you perceive yourself to be contributing to a social benefit to the mitigation of climate change. And in fact, taste, if you were to bring it into the equation, kind of makes this a rather trite experience. The transcendental experience you should be having here is your contribution to the, the promotion of a better society. And there's a reason why this chapter on food also accompanies a chapter on comedy, mm. it's because the, the the ribald laugh that escapes your gut, the Epicurean meal that delivers this you know sense of satisfaction, the sigh you let escape your mouth after you've indulge in this experience, your body betrays you when you experience these satisfying moments. This is not an intellectual experience. The laugh, the satisfying meal, none of this is an intellectual exercise. In fact, it's ungoverned by the intellect. And that's very dangerous if you're afraid of people's instincts, of impulses, that everything needs to be governed and tempered and moderated by social forces that keep you in your place. Uh, That's the sort of thing that the modern Puritan cannot abide. And so I I agree. And I thank you for that uh, setup because it's a very illustrative example of this particular worldview and how it manifests.
0: Mm. I'm glad you brought up comedy because uh, I was really interested to read that section. Comedy is another thing I've covered a lot on this podcast. Why is the battle for comedy in particular so significant to progressive activists?
1: Well, there's, I mean, it's not a new observation, but there's nothing more subversive, I suppose, than that which you are allowed to laugh at. Uh, I use the word allowed in in a very deliberate fashion here, because there is an effort underway to to trivialize and stigmatize the frivolity of the punchline. You see quite a bit of this. uh, There's Two aspects of this. The first, on the part of the more puritanically inclined comedy consumer, is to emphasize the pain that somebody underwent in order for you to enjoy something as frivolous as a laugh. Um, (laughs) The punchline is is indeed, and this is the sort of thing that I use as an example, there are many, but one particularly popular anti-comic among this cohort is uh, Australia's Hannah Gadsby, who is funny when she wants to be, but she doesn't always want to be. Sometimes she will pull back from her comedy act and build the same tension that would otherwise lead to a punchline and that gives you the release of the laugh but she won't allow you the release she'll just build the tension and then just let you marinate in it or she'll circle back to the punchline she said a couple of minutes ago that you laughed at and ask you why you laughed maybe was the pain i experienced back then really all that funny what does that say about your sense of humor this is is what really enlivens the puritanically inclined progressive activist. They appreciate the pain far more than the laugh as just about every review that I cited in this in this book attests. They don't enjoy the laugh, they enjoy the discomfort. Couple that with a significant condescension on the part of the puritanically inclined progressive towards audiences who do not believe that you can be exposed to the casual humorizing of these painful experiences which is is sort of a staple of dark humor i mean uh, one particular indi- uh, individual who i cite in order to just uh, justify this claim illustrate this claim is a guy named seth simons who wrote an essay in the new republic in which he traces the establishment of the alt-right the inception of the alt-right and draws a state li- straight line between that inception date and the january 6th riots is a form of humor that was popular in the early 2000s called cringe leverages unspeakable stuff for humor value, racism, sexism, violence, what have you. And again, this is dark humor. But Simon isn't afraid that the comics on stage lampooning these behaviors are going to go out and act them out. They're going to go down to the subway after they get off stage and assault someone. They don't think that. But they think you might. They're not sure about you. You are a little suspect. Um, so this kind of condescension towards audiences coupled with this fear of and hatred of comedy that isn't instrumental, that isn't advancing the progressive project, has given us a movement that is just genuinely hostile towards carefree, frivolous entertainment. The laugh is something that's very subversive, and they're afraid of what you might laugh at, and then what you might be willing to do because the power of these institutions can't make you stop laughing.
0: Mm. I want to also take a moment to talk about sex um, because the progressive, and I I should say I come from progressive circles, Um, the, the progressive attitudes towards sex have been really puzzling to me. On the one hand, you have progressive activists wanting to smash all cultural norms for sexual conduct and have this sort of complete sexual freedom for all. But on the other hand, someone putting an unwelcome hand on your knee is meant to be really upsetting And takes this is sort of like an almost Victorian view of this need to protect women. You really helped clear up this contradiction for me. I want to read this passage. The thread that connects 17th century Puritanism, the straight-laced moralists of the 19th century, and the new Puritans of the 21st century isn't a strict ethical code governing proper sexual relations. It is a belief that carnal pleasures can't just be enjoyable. They must serve a greater political purpose. Can you unpack that a bit for us?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, your your mind likely goes to the stereotype of a prudish, blue-nosed, straight-laced and a little afraid of sex puritan when you think of puritan stereotypes and that does not describe the left at all, right? Um so that's the, you know, big barrier that I encounter when you're trying to promote this narrative, but it it really isn't difficult to see the parallels as you as you say in the, in that particular passage when you begin to break down what progressives think when they approach sex. So uh, superficially, they're very licentious, superficially promoting hedonistic pursuits and self-gratification in much the same way that progressives and liberals did in the wake of the sexual revolution, right? Well, if you get into the literature around the many proliferating sexual identities, which grow at a a rate that probably have grown since I published this book, what is emphasized is not the self-gratification found in this embrace of this identity that you've sought your whole life to achieve or maybe just discovered. It is not individual self-fulfillment. It is the political program associated with these many identities and the various ways they manifest the real world and the movements that you can be attracted to or are associated with, having adopted these identities. Uh, and I go through each of them to varying degrees in the, over the course of the book. So we have, on the one hand, a political identity associated with your 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 sexual identity, and you referenced, and indeed, if it was just, if it was a hand on your thigh, that's even a a more aggressive intervention than what we're talking about now. Uh, Among the left, uh, uh, over the course of the last decade, roughly, a labyrinthine, almost a navigable set of circumstances have been imposed on individual, young people, especially mostly in colleges, but also at the state level in statute in places like California, briefly, in effort to define what consent means. And non consensual sexual encounters are a crime that should be prosecuted. But the modern progressive knows that what constitutes sexual violence goes way beyond what the statute allows for. It's a far more nebulous concept than what statutory language allows. And so they've created a set of circumstances that expand what constitutes the definition of consent and includes not just a social contract, but in many cases, a real binding physical contract. And the result has been perhaps intentionally, I I can't imagine otherwise, that people are having less sex, less Mm -hmm. casual sex. Now, there's quite a lot of progressives who say, well, that's not such a bad thing. Less sexually transmitted diseases, less teen pregnancy, very complicated situation in their young adult lives. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that I heard from conservatives growing up who preached abstinence-only education. Mm -hmm. This is the sort of thing that was anathema to the progressive left as I was growing up. They have since found... The virtue of this idea, a very conservative conception of the idea that, for example, in this, the chapter on sex also dovetails with booze, which is why the chapter on sex and booze is titled temperance. Mm -hmm. Um, They've rediscovered a very conservative conception of male-female relationships that when you have young men and women in a social situation that's bathed in alcohol, socially destabilizing things can happen. The fabric of society, the order that keeps everyone in line can break down. And that can have tremendous social consequences. And it's something we should discourage. Uh, that's the sort of thing that conservatives would certainly recognize, in part because the very same people who are embracing it made fun of them for the last 20, 30 years for mm-hmm. pursuing a very similar code of conduct. It's the, one of the reasons why the chapters are broken down by virtues is that there's a lot to say for this particular worldview. Mm-hmm. It is just anathema to their parents and grandparents who lived a lot much more carefree, risk prone, perhaps. Overly hedonistic, overly licentious, that's the conservative critique of them. But nevertheless, that was the life they led, and their children are leading a far more austere existence.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's so interesting and also quite confusing in a lot of ways, because you're seeing so many of these ideas come back in in, in very different forms. I want to spend a moment also on holidays. So uh, much like the old Puritans, you point out new Puritans are really not into holidays. So we're seeing these sort of widespread campaigns to make Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween, et cetera, sort of miserable occasions as opposed to celebrations that are full of minefields and full of familial disagreements. What do you see as the significance of that particular kind of trend?
1: Well, they are holidays insofar as they are occasions for anything in the really uh, activist wing of the puritanically inclined progressive left. They are occasions to berate and educate your relatives on their moral failings, which isn't exactly a ton of fun. But we've been privy to that sort of admonition from the progressive left for quite a long time. Mostly Americanized holidays, Halloween, Thanksgiving in particular, which needs to be reconceptualized as a day of mourning per uh, some of the academics that I quote in this thing, but also Christmas. And I've certainly Puritans would recognize that not because the celebration of the religious holiday is itself, it lacks uh, a certain reverence for the divine, but because these holidays encourage behaviors in you that are just negligent and reckless. They encourage overeating, they encourage over over imbibing, this sort of reckless mirth, the what the Puritans called sober mirth, as fun as that sounds, <laughs> uh, is is sacrificed in the observance of these carefree occasions in part and and that's very the objections are very similar across four centuries. It's not the holiday itself. It's the behavior that you're allowed to engage in in these in these moments that are, are something less than reverent and uh, observant of the abject state in which the world finds itself and if you're not dwelling, on the miseries that beset the human condition at every given moment in your life, you're something less than serious about this moment and its challenges and your moral obligation to resolve them. Having a moral obligation to be a good citizen isn't something that anybody, a citizen of the world, isn't something that anybody would object to on its face. But the methods that this pro- progressive puritanical movement has have endorsed, they perceive themselves in themselves, they perceive that behavior to be a mark of their seriousness, their sobriety, their unique, how uniquely attuned they are to suffering in the world. It looks to everyone else like fanaticism, that they can't possibly allow themselves a moment of diversion. And that is obsessive compulsive behavior. But to them, it looks like sobriety and seriousness.
0: Mm hmm. It's also a, a very strong class element to this, uh, which you reference in the book as well. I mean, what we're seeing right now is a lot of quite wealthy, uh, economically privileged individuals really sort of hoisting this on everyone else, and this is this is not new either, as you write.
1: Precisely. Um, since the beginning, I suppose, of progressivism, beginning with the Tom B. Hall movement and the Guild movement in the United States, and even really proto Bolshevism in in Russian Tsarist Russia. There was a very classist approach to proselytizing progressive politics, which involved drafting university students, mostly young men, into the mission of proselytizing, being evangelicals for progressive causes and for progressive reform. And so these young men were drafted into the movement called resettlement. So they would be in London, they'd be pushed out to to the East End. In the United States, they would go out to the the Lower, lower East Side, where all the immigrants were, and out to the peasantry, out to the peasantry in, in, in Russian, in Tsarist Russia, in order to educate the woefully uneducated underclasses about their class, the the state in which they find themselves, inculcate class consciousness and a rebellious insurrectionary approach to politics in, in these groups, uh, often didn't experience much success because of the inherent condescension in the mission itself. But nevertheless, demonstrates a certain certain understanding of that this particular vanguard is a vanguard, that they are intellectually and socioeconomically more inclined towards the work of revolutionary politics uh, than those who uh, just simply lack the educational opportunities that they were afforded. Uh, But they wouldn't think about them themselves in that way. They wouldn't think about themselves in such a condescending way. Um, they're they're part of the, the plight, right? I mean, they perceive themselves to be on the same side as the individuals that they're trying to educate out of their circumstances in life. But that also suggests that you believe that these people have fallen into the circumstances in their life without any agency whatsoever on their own. They've made no choices on their own. They've been forced into these conditions by historical milieu that have forced them into this, into the life that is not of their choosing. And that is a tremendously condescending thing to think about anybody. But yes, this is, that's informs progressive politics from time immemorial and progressivism. We should say, and I forgot to say earlier on, arose from the ashes of the Puritan experiment in America. A lot of the early progressivism of the 19th century was informed by, and perhaps entirely dependent upon mainline Protestantism and mainline Protestantism's view Of what a society's obligations to its um, most vulnerable, poorest members were. The temperance, the chapter on temperance that we talked about briefly, is sex and booze. Describes the um, campaign for prohibition in the United States, which grew out of the Protestant or the uh, temperance movement, and it was the mainline Protestant crusade. This was a religious mission, a religious vocation, and a, a religious conception of itself. And it was accompanied with religious language and it had messianic themes to it. People who believed that banishing alcohol from public life would deliver unto us the Eden that we had destroyed by choice, by pursuit of our own free will, was very popular and very prominent. Uh, And it dovetails with a sort of, a socialist view, early socialist view, that if we were to pursue the right social policies, literally the oceans would turn to lemonade. I'm not making that up. This is what early socialists believed, um, and that was a literal thing. So there's quite a lot of uh, messianism and, and religious overtones in even the secular philosophy that modern progressives espouse. They wouldn't recognize it in themselves, but that's perhaps vanity. I think it's just a lack of a lack of education about the origins of their own intellectual movement.
0: Hmm. I mean it's very clear reading the book the tone is very light but this is this is certainly a moral panic it's a moral panic that is bound to trigger a lot of anger i certainly see that in the conservative response to it but i also see it in the leftist response to it and, and in my own response when you come for food when you come for comedy when you come for every holiday people are going to get angry how do we avoid having a moral panic over the moral panic
1: well right so my intention here is not to make you angry. In fact, my intention is to give you a license to be far less angry because what my chief objective here is to give you license to laugh at that, which is objectively funny. I mean, a lot of this book has, has episodes and anecdotes in it that are humorous and would be humorous properly understood in a vacuum, unless you perceived laughing to be a threat and a menace. Uh, And that's, deliberate on the part of this movement that has punches way above its weight. Numerically, it's hard to quantify who belongs to this movement, but it has managed to capture just about every institution that is wholly or tangentially inclined towards progressivism, values, morals, and, uh, and political imperatives. It has done profound, had profound success, and even achieved some things that I think posterity will look back on and say, well, that was a good thing. Like, for example, this movement has all but rid commercialism in the United States of appeals towards crass male sexual fantasies. That's gone. This progressive uh, movement has went after the game of football and without sacrificing its charm, made it a little bit safer. Uh, I don't think that's something that history will look back on and say, well, that we went too far there. Mm. But like the Puritans who left us an incredible legacy an uncompromising abolitionism, a social safety net that ensures you don't have to depend on charity in your darkest hours, and democratic institutions, proto-democratic institutions that gave rise to uh, American democracy, Canadian democracy. Um, the Puritans are not remembered fondly for their efforts. They are remembered as laughingstocks, uh, in part because they were so uncompromising, so zealous, and that the worldview that they clung to fell out from under them in ways that they didn't recognize until it was far too late to avoid being tarnished as uh, high I suspect that the same fate awaits our modern progressives who are allergic to even the notion of compromise, social, political, or otherwise, and they will not be remembered fondly for their efforts. There's a commercial aspect to this too, which I summarize in the story um, about Band in Boston, which is the Streisand effect. Right? It is mm-hmm. that that which it popularizes because it it wants to anathematize it. These cultural products, seemingly innocent cultural fare, that they like their like the conservatives they used to mock. Uh, has the capacity to corrupt you and degrade society around you. Um, that's the sort of thing that's invisible only to those who are not the most initiated, the most steeped in this, in this political worldview. And that's when they go after these products. Uh, I think the modern equivalent of banned in Boston is maybe banned on Amazon, banned on Facebook. That provides uh, it makes commercial success for these products that they're trying to anathematize and scare you out of reading much more viable. They, they become bestsellers. These books that are targeted by this movement are become bestsellers in ways that the PR campaign around them simply does not justify. And it's because they're getting a lot of free advertising. So combined with these, this commercial pressure, um, which is evident and apparent even now, and the capacity to mock and shame and defame and just dismiss is a sort of thing that This movement has not really experienced until recently. You're beginning to see it now. You're beginning to see people have the the license to just make fun of these really uncompromising moralizers who are preening about stuff that just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Your burrito does not have world historic importance. (laughs) It never did. A pseudo-academic framework that you're applying to your burrito is just a silly exercise on your part. It doesn't communicate your virtue or your value or education. Um, that sort of thing is – you're beginning to have – see some glimmers of that being acceptable to say in mixed company. And it wasn't uh-huh. a couple of years ago, and now it is. And I, And I – I suspect this will this tendency will increase and intensify to a degree that even those who are inclined towards progressive puritanism today will look back on how they behave 10 years from now and say, well, that was kind of silly, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, it's such a funny book and I really enjoyed reading it. Great to get to speak with you about it today.
1: Thank you, Tara. I appreciate this.
0: Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.